Oh yeah. How does that fit in to a cohesive, larger vision? We will always have enough cash yeah. around. Strictly business. Hi, finance fellows, and welcome to CFO Year, your new favorite finance podcast. I'm Patrick, and in this show, we talk finance strategy with leaders from all over the world. In this episode, Spendesk's head of US go-to-market strategy, Alfie Marsh, spoke with Gerardo Adame, VP Finance at XP Power. I don't want to give too much away, so I'll let Alfie give a full introduction. But first, today's episode is brought to you by Spendesk the all-in-one spending solution that puts finance teams in control with 100% visibility into company spend. And by CFO Connect, a global community for finance leaders. Join us at cfoconnect.eu and you can email podcast at cfoconnect.eu with any questions or feedback. Okay, so we are live. Um, thanks everybody for tuning in to another episode of CFO Yeah. My name is Alfie Marsh and I am your host today and I'm joined with you uh, by Gerardo Adami, uh, who is currently the VP of Finance at XP Power. Uh, and we would love to have a bit of an introduction to yourself. Perfect. Well, glad to be with your audience, Alfie. And uh, well, as, as you mentioned, my name is Gerardo Adame. I'm the head of finance at XP Power for North America. Um, just a little bit of what XP Power does. Uh, it's an end-to-end power supply solution provider for um, B2B or industrial healthcare and semiconductors. So uh, it's interesting because it's a British publicly traded company. So I'll, I'll tell you all about it because... Uh, there are not that many in the Bay Area, right? Most of these, we're talking about uh, VC-backed startups, primarily driven by local funding. And then here I am, here I am after uh, a few VC-backed startups uh, working for a British company. So, but no, I'm originally from Mexico. I came to the United States uh, 16 years ago. Relocated. I used to work for in Mexico for companies like uh, Procter and Gamble and Monsanto, uh, who which was recently acquired by Bayer, Bayer Crop Science, big German pharma and ag company. Uh, but yeah, back in 2005, 2005, 2006, um, I was leading a regional wide SAP implementation for finance. Uh, a bunch of modules within SAP, and uh, they needed someone. They, they started with the notion of this, you've probably heard of, Center of Excellence or shared services, whereby large corporations would start centralizing their uh, administrative functions, uh, HR, finance, admin. And Monsanto started uh, embarking on that um, since the early 2000s. And I knew very well the company, the region, Latin America, um, speak fluently Spanish and Portuguese and knew the systems and the procedures. So that's how I ended up in the headquarters in St. Louis, um, leading you know, capital planning and other financial related centralization activities, financial operation activities. Um, I spent most of my good 
10 years in St. Louis, Missouri. Did my MBA there at St. Louis University. So go Belicans. And um, I had a variety of roles in financial planning and analysis, in cost analysis, um, marketing intelligence from a financial standpoint, so business anal analytics, and um, leading teams remotely. I think that's part of what defines me. I always had uh, teams of uh, diverse backgrounds in multiple countries, different languages, and I think I very much enjoy that uh, over my career there. And one of my last roles at Monsanto was, uh, at that time, Monsanto was expanding into ag tech, what we know now as agricultural technology. Back then, in the early 2010s, uh, we started hearing something about it, but not so much until Monsanto did an acquisition. Uh, the first unicorn in the ag tech uh, um, environment, the Climate Corporation, acquired by shy of a billion dollars. Um, and Climate Corporation had an offering of agricultural software, uh, remote sensing, um, advisory through data collection, and uh, basically uh, connecting with the farmer through an app. And that was unheard of in the industry. So I was very thrilled and interested about learning more of, of the finances, the financials behind it, right? The software, a company that uh, was manufacturing innovative biotech, but it had a very large manufacturing component was interested in digitizing. Uh, their products, not just the supply chain or their internal processes, but now offering um, a digital product uh, was very interesting to me. And that's how I ended up coming to the Bay Area back in 2014-15. And um, I was helping just setting up the financial planning and analysis processes and how to speak Monsanto to the Climate Corporation, complete different cultures. Um, you know, Climate Corp was a, a Series C, I believe, Series Z. Uh, they are a type of uh, fun startup being acquired by a behemoth of a company with really strong, robust and mature processes. And the world of the finances were completely different, right? Here's a mentality of fundraising, wrong ways, try to find investors, and here is a mentality of growth, uh, established procedures, quarterly targets. Uh, you need to meet your numbers. So I was right in the middle, and I try my best to set up all of the financial planning analysis processes there in Climate Corp. And, uh, you know, one thing led to another. I fell in love with the Bay Area, being too close to my, home, my hometown in Mexico City, um, we, my family and I decided to stay in the, in the Bay Area and uh, um, it was time for me to move on because Climate Corp was a satellite office within Monsanto. If I had to continue, if I wanted to continue further in my career, I had to go back to the headquarters. So that's how in just, you know, random looking, I found this really great startup called Endless Mobile or Endless, uh, who is basically focusing on the digital divide, 
creating low-cost computers with, that don't require connectivity to provide education and try to close the digital divide of education in uh, uh, countries where there's no proper infrastructure of Wi-Fi or internet and there is lack of proper educational system. Uh, countries like uh, Guatemala, uh, Brazil, Peru, and Southeast Asia as well. We we help a lot. Uh, my last activity there at Endless was supporting the setup of the Indonesia Indonesia uh, branch. So I traveled all over the world. We were able to um, help fund the company. As a lot of good. Uh, people there uh, that were very focused on just making sure that there was availability of this product, which at that time it was a computer, a small computer, really low-cost computer, only $100 with low, lots of content in it. Um, but then, you know, long-term it was decided that this company, its primary focus was uh, the operating system, uh, continue growing through an open-source operating system. And um, the notion or the objective, the vision of this company was get the word out there. It really doesn't, uh, it's not, the for-profit aspect of the startup was conflicting with the actual mission of the company because uh, the main objective is get it to as many people as possible. And when you have targets of profitability, you need to have a plan behind it. And the company decided to, uh, change their uh, tax structure into a non-profit uh, that would allow them to continue expanding their product, get donations, and don't worry much about the next series funding or hitting a margin level or, or hitting a top line level. So um, Endless is up and running. We had a pleasure to work with a lot of very passionate people in the ed tech, as they say, educational technology. But it was time for me to move on, and I really enjoy very much the aspect of manufacturing, right? And when you look at the Bay Area, is very, um, it's very split. Uh, there's a lot of finance focus in software as a service or something as a service, right? The evolution of SaaS has become, you know, you put a war, a letter at the beginning and then it's as a service, many <laughs> things. And the discipline that you have coming with a manufacturing background is, uh, it's complex enough that um, you get to enjoy it a lot. So I, I found this really good startup called Temp Automation uh, Series B under 100 employees. They needed. They were just opening their new manufacturing facility in the heart of San Francisco. Uh, go figure, right? A manufacturing facility in one of the most expensive cities from a cost of living standpoint. It was very thilly, uh, interesting, and I wanted to hear more about that. And the notion is is a circuit board assembly um, company that was trying to digitize their product offering F from date ingestion all the way to shipping the board because at the end of the day their product was an actual uh, circuit board uh, to collections and communication uh, engineering change orders uh, 
at the end of the day, this was this notion of continuous manufacturing. You can come in, you have a digital twin of the manufacturing floor. You can see through what is happening and make changes in your order. So it was very dynamic. It, it had a component of software and a component of hardware as well. And it had the complexity of fundraising uh, from a very capital intensive company that my skill set uh, came in really handy as they continue their funding progression to series C. Um, and I'm happy to report that they are now on uh, a path to IPO pretty soon. Uh, if everything goes well, uh, they will be IPO in next year. And, um, but you know, the pandemic go Everybody got hit hit by the pandemic. I was right there uh, while the pandemic uh, hit everybody, February, March of 2020. And uh, it feels so distant, you know, it feels like it happened 10 years ago. Hmm. But um, I had to take some time off. Uh, I had recently had my second daughter, Rafaela. She was just born. Congratulations. Uh, thank you very much. And, you know, there was a lot of pressure in the finances, getting a bridge loan to continue uh, understanding what we want to do, um, getting all sorts of funding for the company to continue growing, um, discussing whether we needed to have a, a PPP loan or not. And a lot of tough conversations happened, not only at the at Tempo, but across all of the VC-backed companies, right? How are we going to continue surviving in a very ambiguous environment? And I decided that it was time for me to um, go back to a publicly traded company, uh, a little bit more stable due to health slash mental health um, I just needed my weekends back, you know, <laughs> and be with my family. So um, this great opportunity came up with XP Power. They're located in Sunnyvale. They were looking for someone that had public and private experience. Um, even though they're publicly traded, they were growing as a distributor. And with that in mind, there were a lot of uh, headaches that uh, startups have gone through and I could apply my prior experience, not only in the manufacturing side of the question, but also in the issues that a small public company growing had, right? And associate those with my prior experience at Tempo at Endless and Climate Corporation. So it was a very nice, um, you know, uh, opportunity for me to jump in exactly what I needed um, and just take a little bit of a break of fundraising of all of it. It, it, it is a stressful, you know, anybody can tell you it is a very stressful environment. Absolutely. Uh, and being right in the middle of the pandemic, needing to fundraise, running a business and a potential acquisition all at the same time, uh, it takes a toll on you. And so I've been with XP Power now for over a year and a few months now as head of finance for North America. It is their largest region in terms of revenue and growth. And uh, I am enjoying it very much because it has components of uh, the industry where I was before with Tempo, uh, the tools that I use at Monsanto, and the capabilities of a manufacturing 
company that I very much enjoy. So that's who I am in a nutshell and really happy to be here in your podcast, Alfie. Well, listen, that was a, an amazing overview. There's there's so many things I'd love to dive into there. Um, sure. You know, firstly, it's it's so interesting, um, the background of different types of businesses and different types of business models. I guess there's, you know, uh, a recurring theme, theme through a lot of the companies that you've worked in, which is around manufacturing. So a lot uh, previously, yes. you know, in farming and agro, um, agriculture and agritech, uh, and then moving into the uh, more software space, but still with that, uh, you know, tempo with hardware as well as software still very much in the manufacturing um, and with that comes a lot of different types of challenges in a uh, yes. VC back type company yeah, like we were just saying uh, it very much is a sprint it's um, you know we've seen lots of I think in uh, startups particularly back uh, you know where I'm from in Europe as well as coming more and more in the US I've seen uh, sabbaticals happening in within the startup world uh, because you know you do two to three four years in a startup that is of hyper growth uh, that is it is a yes. sprint it's not a marathon and and you do need to, uh, uh, you know, recoup and, and recover. You know, going on from that as well, there are multiple different types of business models which require different skill sets. So it's super interesting how you've now come to this role at XP Power, and I'd love to talk about that a little bit more. So, sure. with the different types of business models that you've seen, for example, you know, manufacturing first, and your roles at Monsanto. And then going into uh, manufacturing plus software and going more heavily into the software side, how does this actually impact your role in the finance function uh, uh, within the different teams, the stakeholders you uh, you work with in, in your day to day? Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, as you look at all of the industries that I've been before, I think the the, um, the common denominator is innovation, right? Um, I don't know if you've heard about this term industry 4.0, but it's all about digitizing, automating, uh, we talk even about virtual reality or augmented reality, and, and there's a component of uh, machine learning of or deep learning, but how do you make agile manufacturing? How do you take what happened in software uh, a few decades ago and apply that agile software development into agile manufacturing? development and innovation even in Monsanto was all about uh, biotechnology and innovation inside of the seed then outside of the seed and then digitize the technology so it was a really nice stack of uh, innovation uh, product innovation if you will when you look at um, Temp automation, it was all about innovation, right? Redefining uh, an industry that had been there for many, many decades that had not been touched by the 21st century technology, right? Very focused on hardware, but very little implementation in software. And now at XP Power, is again, it's all about innovation, industry 4.0. How do we make more with less at the end of the day? There's a component of sustainability, as well, right? Uh, and the role of the finance, uh, head of the finance in these environments is very dynamic because at the end of the day, uh, there's a component of keeping the lights on like everybody else has that you, I would say it's a controllership function, the engine of the finance that allows you not to worry about the day-to-day. -day. If you have a proper controllership department across any industry, that will allow the head of finance to really think beyond the month in closing or the quarter in closing and really become a strategic partner 
to the business. And I think that is the key um, of across all of my experiences, get the proper engine working with the right uh, people, process and tools. Uh, let that be and let it run and grow with the business. But um, focus significantly in understanding the key drivers of the business. At the end of the day, uh, when you're a finance leader, you have the luxury of data, right? You get to see all of the data of the company, not just the financial data, but how the financial data connects with the manufacturing data, with yields, with uh, productivity, with efficiency information. Um, data coming from software, from the marketing pipeline, uh, how many leads are you getting, the cost of a lead, uh, what is your customer acquisition cost? Even in a manufacturing environment, you can calculate the customer acquisition cost uh, and implement all of these, um, what I call growth uh, discipline or growth frameworks that are that can be applied across multiple industries. So at the end of the day, you know, a lot of people will tell you, well, finance has to be a partner to the business. Um, I think not just a partner, but a strategic advisor. Um, I always think of myself as an independent individual or thought process partner within a company that I always try to keep my eyes out of the equation and see it from up above and say, would I invest in this company? Is, are the decisions that this company making sense internally and externally? Right. I pitch to myself what I want to do internally in the company and say, would I convince myself as an investor of, or as an external user of, of financial information that the decision that is being made by this individual, who happens to be me, is the right decision? And the level of support that you get from your peers and your um, in an executive team or a leadership team, it's really important to do temperature checks and say, hey, is information that is a decision that you're making, is it sound? Do you understand it? Can you explain it without me in the room, right? That is when you start adding, you know, the mentorship across all of the departments and tailor the information, right? Tailor the message. It's really important. And was it in Temper Automation your first uh, role as a, on the executive, uh, you know, leadership team where you were implementing and building the processes or systems, or did that come earlier on in in the career? It came early. It came in at Endless uh, Endless Mobile. I was that was my first uh, head of finance function properly, and in a startup. Um, and it very quite interesting because it, this startup had subsidiaries already set up all over the world. When I joined, we had a branch in Brazil, one in Mexico, uh, one in Guatemala, one in the UK, one in Hong Kong, one in China, and the headquarters in the US. So it's uh, quite interesting to see, you know, it was my first role coming into a Series B startup pre-revenue that had already the financial complexity of... Uh, small medium business already up and running so i had to come up with all of the framework behind how to properly bring all of the financial data together from all of the subsidiaries consolidate and prepare financial information to the board 
to make decisions. Uh, so you had complexity around multiple currencies, uh, multiple time zones, inventory across multiple locations, and different price points. So it was very interesting, uh, as they say, baptized by, by fire, <laughs> if you will, because you would, you would assume, well, a Series B startup, one single entity working in the US, under 100 employees, everybody working in the same location or close to um, one single culture. And that is really important. When you're a finance leader, you need to understand the cultural impact of the numbers. Uh, and that was not the case at Endless. We had over more than 10 different nationalities, uh, eight different currencies, five different time zones, a very intricate bank account um, a structure dealing with multiple bank relationships and uh, an international board of uh, a set of investors. It was not only in the U.S. We had investors uh, from different types of parts of the world. So it was quite an interesting challenge there. If you're enjoying this conversation, then you've got to check out CFO Connect, the global community for modern finance leaders like the ones on this podcast. We host monthly events and workshops, have a private Slack group for CFOs, and a one-on-one member matching program. CFO Connect membership is free, but reserved for experienced finance leaders. So if that's you, head over to cfoconnect.eu and apply to join us. So it sounds like when you um, when you go into that role as a as a leadership uh, person, you, you you are thinking about how to set up and build the structure of the finance team. And it sounds like the the, the core fundamental layer for you when you're going into that position is about collecting an aggregation of data so that you can then do something with it. Um, so I guess you know if you look at almost like a pyramid of of skills you have uh, on the core foundation layer data aggregation collection making that uh, you know translating that into a uh, you know whether it's international or just a global uh, language that can be understood not just in the spoken language but just in terms of uh, are you talking about the, referring to the right things the right metrics the right KPIs and what do they mean um, once you've kind of started to build these uh, points and you're getting the, the data in and getting those data sources what are the next sort of things that you think about in building out a finance team once you have the data and you trust the data, right, which is an ongoing battle, okay. it's, it's not just one thing, right? The minute that you stop looking at your data set is the minute that you lose control, right? It's always top of mind being able to aggregate the data and uh, the controllership functions in a traditional financial department, they play a big role there and how they collect the data, the timeliness of that data and the accuracy of the data. But then you kind of start stacking up um, the analytics or the financial analysis, what traditionally is called financial planning and analysis, basically taking that information and start predicting, setting up targets, creating KPIs, uh, dashboards that people, users of information can have at their finger tips uh, to make decisions or predictions. Um, the same dashboard of financial data happens to have a, a combination of also operational metrics, right? There's really always an overlap between financial metrics and operational metrics. And when you provide that information to a different user of 
that information, say a head of marketing versus a head of manufacturing or a head of engineering, uh, they will have a very com a very different reads of that same dashboard and they will tell you uh, their perspective and it is the financial, you know, they had a finance responsibility to make sense out of all of that, those perspectives or bring order out of all of that chaos and clear what is the right narrative of what the story is. Um, risk adjust the numbers to say, hey, we're doing well, but we're not doing so well, or this is not as bad as you would expect because you're just immersed in this quarter's delivery of the next batch of code, for instance. And it feels like it's a nightmare that we're not going anywhere, but um, it helps provide perspective across all of the departments. So the next layer is um, analytics and interpretation of those analytics to properly, at the end of the day, Finance has to be a proper storyteller, right? You can aggregate a bunch of data, but if you cannot succinctly talk about it in a compelling way, in a way that can influence decisions across all of the departments in a company, you're not you're not doing a, a really good job, right? You have to be there on top of your data and tell the story behind the numbers. Is this where you would say the the kind of dividing line from uh, uh, the I guess the the day to day running of the business to becoming a strategic advisor from the number cruncher to the strategic advisor is that where the line is drawn your your capability to uh, narrate a story around the data that you're presenting at what point does someone become a strategic advisor within a business in my case I think there's still a third step I would say that this step gets you to the traditional finance business partner you're gonna hear a lot well I, I do I'm a very good business partner what does that mean is I think for me is this is what it meant that level two of using the data and explaining it and influence decision making but then the strategic advisor role the strategic planner role is really once you, start mentoring your peers and you start influencing their decisions to think beyond what um, what their plans are and really is when the complexity of what I call financial engineering comes into place um, there's a lot of uh, restructure activities or ways to grow a company over and above just doing a great job at execution and having a proper product pipeline and having a killer team, right? We've seen time and time again, very complex uh, financial structuring um, activities that influence the growth of a company and that just boost them in a way that it has never seen before, right? Acquisitions, M&As, uh, now there's a lot of booming in taking companies public through uh, SPACs, special purpose acquisition companies, um, and many other beyond the organic growth of business type of strategic investments, right? Or even challenging uh, the product development team into thinking in, in expanding, not just geographically, but something beyond what they would think that is, you know, aligned with the ethos of the company, right? So the, that is strategic planner comes 
something that is uh, not very much in the DNA of a finance leader, which is re taking additional risk. Typically, finance leaders, traditional finance leaders, and I, I'm overgeneralizing, they tend to be very risk adverse, right? But in this day and age, uh, rather than being risk adverse, I think you need to be able to properly manage risk and change the profile of risk of a company according on the type of opportunities that you see ahead. Identifying that opportunity before anybody else, I think that's where the strategic advisor role of a finance leader comes into place, right? And that to me is the, is the tip of the pyramid. That's super interesting. There's, there's so, especially in the Bay Area, there, there's so many companies where the, the the fundamental value proposition of what they're offering is is often the same. Um, mm. You know, if you, if if you use an example like Amazon, right, the the fundamental value proposition is the same as a as a a, a normal retail store. You're going to buy something that you want to buy um, and purchase it, and, and that's pretty much it. What's really different there is the innovation of the business model behind that um, and that a lot of that is really something which it's a, fundamentally it's a finance um, it's a finance decision it's a it's a finance driven uh, decision to innovate on that distribution model um, and like you said there's more of a uh, focus or emphasis on actually taking risk because you need to t with any sort of innovation there is risk taking uh, and these Correct. sorts of innovations are, are really where uh, a lot of these different companies whether it's you know uber airbnb so on and so forth it's the way that they're doing the business model that is actually really important and you need that information to drive that sort of strategic uh, change and, and innovation um, you know taking on from maybe this particular topic and going with a, a specific example just before we started recording we were talking about the supply chain so this mm -hmm. is maybe an example where we could put these frameworks into practice so uh, you know on the base level it's about capturing information being able to you know categorize it put it in the right place so everybody is you know singing from the same hymn sheet uh, then being able to interpret that to the different business leaders and a step on from that being able to uh, widen the kind of horizons of what's possible uh, and help take risks to overcome something the the reason as we were saying the supply chain is such an issue at the moment obviously with the coronavirus pandemic uh, that's had major issues and knock-on effects in something in a very unprecedented way which we've not got a lot of historical um data to have any sort of security right. or certainty over what we're, we're providing so could you maybe talk me through um you know how would you think about this particular problem that you've seen from first-hand experience from like a process all the way to you know how you would actually become a strategic advisor and planner within the business yeah i think uh as you mentioned we're in uncharted territories in particular those companies that uh have to move a physical unit of something, a raw material, a finished product, uh, or move around people, right? We saw how the pandemic uh, hit Airbnb in, in, a, in a good way because people were stopped traveling, taking flights, and the product, which is basically the experience, moving into more of micro supply chains. And we started seeing proliferation of growth within bubbles of groups of individuals. I don't know if you remember that uh, when we first coined the the concept of who is in your bubble, right? 
Yes. Uh, and it was just the same five to ten people. And that was that's a supply chain. That's a unit of product that Airbnb was really good at able of monetizing, moving bubbles and having uh, small groups of people in local Airbnbs. When I myself I travel a lot, I stopped traveling for the past two years. I just got on a plane a few months ago after almost two years. But I was moving with my bubble in every single Airbnb. So it's a very interesting supply chain um, uh, uh, dilemma that we're living in. But now at XP Power, I'm dealing with a large um, macro scale impact on the supply chain. Uh, XP Power is um, part of electronics manufacturing uh, industry worldwide. Our vertical, our primary vertical that we work with is with semiconductor uh, fabricators. And there's a large um, shortage of uh, microchips all over the world. There's a lot of movements around uh, the supply chain of microchips. And we are part of that supply chain. So how do you um, work around being a you need to increase your level of risk on the type of decisions that you're going to make. And what that means is you're potentially going to make short-term decisions that in a vacuum will look like uh, you're putting in the near the company, but the, long, the long-term impact of short-term financial decisions needs to be really thought of. Um, the working capital position of a heavy manufacturing company is being impacted significantly uh, and the main reason being is the cash conversion cycle uh, before the pandemic you used to bring an input process it create a finished product ship it and collect it within you know 80 to 100 days now that same input there's a scarcity of components there's a scar because everybody is looking after the same components in order to make the end product right uh, so you have a lot of cash trapped into inventory. And then after that, what's happening to labor? Inflationary increases, the cost of labor and all of the labor dynamics in the United States in particular are impacting your supply chain because you're fighting for challenge. You need to pay well, much more uh, on wages and you need to keep you need to keep your people uh, focused in a very challenging environment, right? Mental health also impacts the supply chain because we're seeing people just just it is it, it is uh, what they call it the big um, help me out here with this term people living in mass in mass of uh, their jobs, right? Uh... Yes, and I know exactly what. Now that you put it, uh, I can't think of it either. But um, I know exactly what. But you know, <laughs> it's even if you have the product, if you don't have the labor, you cannot create your finished product. And then, so the scarcity of raw materials. Everybody fighting for the same components. Yeah. The lead times of those materials, because we have seen the ports uh, extremely congested. You just cross the Bay Area Bridge and you see all of these Chinese vessels just waiting there to be unloaded for weeks, right? Um, and then you have the labor impact. And then once you have your finished product, you need to ship it out to your customer, right? So what is happening right now is customers understand 
the impact of the supply chain. So there's record-breaking record bookings or orders ahead of time because they know that if they, they need to pull in all of the orders early in the year to give you a chance to meet their customer demands, they know that if they need it by you know, November of next year, in a regular month, in a regular year, they would place an order sometime in August to get something in November. Now they need to place an order a year before in November to get that same product that they need in the next year. So the planning aspect of the supply chain, all the way from sourcing to shipping, has been severely impacted. The labor component and the impact on inflation and on the scarcity of prices is, is there across all of the supply chains of all of the world. How do you solve for that? How do you support a strategic decision off of it? You need to read really well the industry and you need to be able to quantify your decisions. And those decisions on a regular environment, chances are that they're not going to make sense at all. Hmm. Right. So, would, what would be an example of a decision that you know wouldn't make sense? You know, from hearing you speak there, I, I would I would look at that and say, okay, from a finance perspective, there's a, a big challenge with working capital. I'll tell you one that we that I've been discussing that uh, everybody say like, are you for real? Like, I'll give you an example. Um, in every manufacturing company, there one of the KPIs that every finance person loves is inventory level. You need to keep your inventory level low, right? Meaning that you have a lot of turn inventory turnover. So I'm going to give you a target of whatever, let's say $10 million in inventory, and you should not go past $10 million. Okay, fine. Well, what's happening right now is uh, the devil is in the details, right? That inventory, if you don't have the right raw materials, to produce a finished product, your inventory by default is going to stay flat, right? You can't do anything. You cannot find the inputs. So is that a good thing that you're keeping at your inventory target? Well, if you dig deeper, you double click in the number is there's no sales because that inventory is not moving. It's just staying at the level, right? Mm. So and a strategic decision is you need to double your inventory of inputs. But hang on a minute. Uh, you told me that it should only be $10 million. Well, I'm asking you to double that inventory such that you can debottleneck your entire supply chain. We need to make short-term bets for long-term uh, benefits. We don't know in the marketplace when is the next time that we're going to find this component available in the market. Even if I only need five, I'm going to go and buy 10 or 15 because I don't know when the next fives are going to be available. So go ahead and stock up strategically sourcing inventory irrespective of the impact in the short term of that what they'll do in your working capital. The bet is that is going to set up for success Q3 of next year because I guarantee you that you're going to need that component now on and that is unheard of right these, these... you're telling me that you need to invest more in inventory that i don't know if you're going to use yes because you will use it and believe you me you're not going to find it if you don't make these decisions right now 
Think you have company cash under control? You may have a process to pay people back, but company spending is so much more than expense claims. Spendesk gives you one system to replace your old-fashioned company cards, track online payments easily, and process supplier invoices faster than ever. Whether you're a growing startup or you've been doing this for decades, it's never too late to upgrade. Graduate from basic expenses to spend management today. Try Spendesk. So we're trying to mitigate risk by, um, or, or mitigate the negative externalities of these supply chain issues through taking more risk uh, by having a better understanding of that. You know, I, I don't know if this would be a good terminology, but it's almost the velocity of inventory rather than just a you know a static amount of, of what that is. Correct. Um, but that also has you know knock-on effects that some people to do that that might cost more money. If you need to double the inventory, that might be going through supply chains that cost more money and and increase the cost of, of production and I was listening to a podcast the other day talking about you know Peloton uh, mm-hmm. supply chain issues and you know they have a very interesting business model uh, also an element of physical goods as well as software you know they have massive supply chain issues in terms of costs going up for their raw materials their bikes and so on but they are able to kind of offset that or, or mitigate that risk by having subscription revenue coming in if you're in a uh, environment where you don't have that kind of flexibility then that needs to to come maybe from other places. Um, you mentioned in the case of working capital being squeezed in such uh, sort of inventory, the, the, the cash conversion cycle being longer. Uh, what would be other ways to uh, fuel that reduction in working capital? That'd be financing, other taking risks, maybe raising funds. Uh, so how do you see the kind of the secondary impact of all of these uh, problems that are occurring, uh, maybe with regards to the, the fundraising cycle, financing, how do you see other tools and, and, and companies and products helping uh, be able to overcome those kind of issues? Yeah, I think uh, if you're a company that has a proper cash position, a strong cash position, you have much more tools at your disposal. If you're EBITDA positive, you're, you have much more uh, debt financing tools at your disposal, whereby a revolving credit line, uh, growth facility, or even um, supply chain financing, which we start seeing a lot of that in the in the financial in the FinOps world, right? Uh, reverse financing through your suppliers. Uh, there's much more tools around it. Um, certainly, customer relationships play a big role here because if the customer is placing an order earlier because they know of the lead times to get that product that they need. You can certainly negotiate prepayments uh, or advance payments in order to, or, or have agreements on inventory. I'm doing this for you. You're going to risk just, and in the event that you cancel an order, you're going to pay me for this inventory that you requested in case that I cannot repurpose it. There's internal tools that you can do, uh, better negotiation tactics, and a lot of customer relationship plays uh, here. When it comes to startups, um, you know, last year there were um, federal funds to support uh, certain type of companies, small, medium businesses, uh, the payroll protection uh, plan loan, and any of those resources. You need to think ahead of just what is your collection cycle, 
right? The collection cycle is one, but there are other tools that you can apply. And depending on which type of position you're in, if you're in negative EBITDA in your work, in your company, then you might not get uh, access to certain uh, credit facilities that banks could provide you. But there's always there's always a flavor of support if you have gone through it and seen it and you know how to properly structure a deal. And I think that's a part of the strategic advisory role in the finance leaders right now. Identify those opportunities quickly and understand what works best in the situation of your company. It might be so that you just need to request a bridge loan uh, to your investors. It might be so that you just need to uh, request a prepaid to your largest customer and say, hey, if you invest $5 million in this inventory, you're going to be able to get your product much quicker. Strategic alliances also play a big role. When you think about a company that is part of a supply chain of a broader, larger manufacturer company, right? In our case, we do power supplies. In the case of Tempo Automation, circuit boards that go into very complex electronics. Those companies that require your input will help you the risk their supply chain. You're part of their supply chain. And they're willing to listen and learn and lend you a hand. Whereby is a, you know, a strategic alliance. We will give you equity, uh, a convertible debt note. That is a cash infusion and it's a win-win for both the larger customer that requires your input and your company in terms of continue having the necessary operating funds to uh, stay afloat of these very, very um, challenging times. And that is where the part of the strategic advisor comes into play, right? What, what type of deal do you structure with whom? Is it a bank? Is it a private investor? Is it a customer? Is it even a supplier? Is it time to de-risk your supply chain to the point that strategically it makes sense to acquire that business that provides you these components? I need to secure the supply of these components that go into my final product. Let's go ahead and acquire this company because this re- the risk my whole business model and keeps me afloat in terms of uh, my operating model. Gerardo, I think we're going to have to get you back on and we're going to have to talk all about uh, the financing options and these kind of strategic plays because we could talk for absolutely hours on this stuff. This has been an absolutely wonderful interview. I've personally really enjoyed it. I hope the audience has has found value in it. Uh, Maybe before we go, what's one of your favorite books that you're either reading at the moment or have read in the past that you'd recommend our audience to pick up? I've been reading this book... um, do I have it here in front of me? Well, let me tell you which one I'm reading at the moment. It's not that interesting, but it helps a lot when it comes to decision making if you're using this ERP system, SAP for HANA Finance. Okay. You know, I think, uh, why am I reading this book? And I'll get back to the best book. Uh, understanding the um, value of applying tools in your systems to unlock efficiencies is really important. You know, you need to squeeze every drop of every rock that you find. Um, 
there's a lot of things that you can automate from your working capital. We're talking about inventory management, collection management, uh, bank account reconciliation, uh, payables, uh, not just uh, do you do POs, non-POs, credit cards, etc., etc. You may have a lot of really good ideas here, but if you cannot put them in your ERP system or you pick an incorrect partner, you you know, reducing your DSO from 45 days to 40 days, every single day counts, right? And it's people, process, and technologies. Uh, and I think um, at least keeping you know, learning from your ERP to challenge your uh, IT organization to give you efficiencies is super important. So I'm reading that book. One of the favorite books that I, that I like is about, uh, help me with the, with the title, uh, Cognitive Biases. Very famous. Uh, thinking Fast and Slow, Daniel Kahneman. Thinking Fast yes. and Slow, correct. <laughs> I so love this I, book as well. <laughs> that, I think, is one of my favorite books. And I've read it three times, and I always forget the title of the book. <laughs> um, uh, you're you're but, a better man than I am because I, yeah. I I struggle to get through the whole thing once because it's it's very uh, dense. But it's I dense. I absolutely loved the concepts on that. I mean, you know, you you know, my my background is much more in sales and marketing than it is in in finance. But um, it's behaviors. It's behaviors. behaviors, right? It is. It is. And uh, I think you know, was it Warren Buffett that once said, "Well, if the stock market isn't behavioral, then he doesn't know what is." And uh, finance is exactly. is behaviors in in numbers. So. In numbers, correct. So I like reading that book because it helped me identify what type of behaviors I need to uh, foster and motivate and influence and what type of behaviors I need to contain and manage uh, within the numbers. So it's dense, I agree with you. And you have to read it several times up until you can apply it in real life. But once you have at least a few biases identified, it helps a lot from a finance leader. Absolutely. Thank you so much for your time. Where can our audience find you? Uh, on LinkedIn, uh, Gerardo Adame. Uh, you'll see me there. And on, I'm really, um, you know, that's the only one I have, uh, LinkedIn. I try to keep my time, my personal time away from social media. And I try to spend most of my time with my two daughters and my wife. So, LinkedIn is the best way. That's how we, you and I connected for the first time. So uh, you you can tell your audience that I, I answered LinkedIn questions pretty absolutely. fast, I believe. I, I concur, absolutely. Listen, thank you so much for your time. And uh, thank we you very much, Alfie. Get, we're going to have to get you back on very soon. Thanks to you, Gerardo. Thank you, Alfie. And thank you to your audience. CFO Year is brought to you by CFO Connect, the fastest growing global community for finance leaders. Join us for webinars and workshops, get our expert resources, and be a part of an exclusive Slack group just for CFOs. Join the community and exchange ideas with CFOs from the most exciting companies in the world. Just visit cfoconnect.eu.